Amen. Amen. Isn't it so encouraging that God is at work wherever you are? I remember hearing Billy Graham share years ago that um, he would do this deal. He would train himself to share the gospel by taking any kind of everyday object in life and finding a way to illustrate the gospel. So he would pick up a pencil and he would talk about how you can get from here to Jesus with the pencil, or you would take a phone, or a book, or driving a car. And I thought about that and remembered, you know what? If God is the creator in heavens of the earth, if he's literally in everything, then everything connects back to him. So you could actually take any object, any idea, science, astronomy, business, money, shoes, and if you just think for a few minutes, actually is a way to connect the dots back to Jesus. Isn't that cool? So half and half in grape juice. Who would have thought, right? Praise God. Well, a couple things I wanna, I wanna share with you before we jump into the message today is, number one, really exciting news. Last night at 9.30 p.m., Chris Pletcher, our family's pastor, they had their fifth child last night. Pretty exciting. Brooks David Pletcher, so... He's alive and well and a healthy baby, and so they're really excited uh, that he came last night. So he's a February baby, officially, and so that's really cool. You can shoot him a text and uh, just say you're proud of him, and they'll be back here sooner than later. So that's going on. Uh, Second thing is, this coming Friday, we have something called World Mandate, all right? This Friday is World Mandate and Saturday, okay? So you can register up to the door if there's spots available. We're gonna try to fill this room. There's still a few seats available. World Mandate, if you don't know what that is, it's our annual kind of movement-wide, Antioch movement-wide missions conference that we actually have 13 satellite locations going on at the same time. We're all live streaming the speakers, everything else, the worship and different pieces we're doing are here done in this building. And World Mandate's been going on for nearly 30 years. And uh, we have 85 teams overseas that serve with Antioch, missionary teams. We have 43 churches in the U.S., and every single one of those people leading and spearheading those teams, they have been to World Mandate, and they would probably all say at some point in their spiritual walk with God, it was a huge moment, a demarcation moment, so to speak, for their journey with God. So I would encourage you, just like it happened to me back in 2004, my first World Mandate, where God really got a hold of my heart for more of him and for the nations of the earth. Um, never knowing what God would have, would, would, uh, never knowing what my part to play would be, but God invited me into that journey just on a heart level. And so if you've never been, I would encourage you to come. It's Friday night and all day Saturday. We'd love to have you here at World Mandate. And the last thing I'll share with you is if you weren't here last week, we kicked off a series called Own It because as a church, we are on the, for the next two years, are on a journey called the Own It Initiative, all right? And so there's these cool little guidebooks underneath your chair. If you were here last week, you got one. Don't take another one. If you weren't here, grab one because it do cost money. So I want you to grab one, though. Um, if, if you have, you can take sermon notes in there. During Life Group this week, we're going through passages that are in here as a church-wide, no matter if it's a family zone, young adult, uh, youth, college. We're going through these passages of Scripture together because God's really inviting us on a journey together so that we can be synced up biblically is why we're going through this. There's also devotionals, right? And so there's five devotionals per week we want you to go through. It's a very simple passage of scripture. You read through it, highlight it, mark it up. This is yours to keep. And then answering some simple questions. This is helping you to actually study the Bible, right? And so we talked about last week the importance of the word of God being the central focus, foundational piece for our faith. 
and not the opinions of man or our thoughts and feelings about everything, but actually allowing the word of God to be the one that we filter everything through. And so that's what's going on. We'd love for you to be a part of that. And the last piece is this. To go along with the Own It initiative, we have something really exciting happening on February 12th. We're having something we're calling an advanced commitment night, which more or less means if you're here at Antioch and you're saying, you know what, I've, I've read through this booklet, I, I've heard the vision, I've kind of known about it for a little bit while, and I want to be part of what God's doing here at Antioch for the long haul, I want to be in, then we would invite you to come out to our land. It's going to be at our new piece of land in College Station. It's eight acres of land that we own, debt-free. We've got a huge tent set up. It's going to be a revival tent, okay? It's happening out there in the land. It's going to be a one-night event. And it's gonna be a really sweet moment for us as a church family to kind of go before the Lord and really consecrate ourselves, say, Lord, we're believing you can do amazing things on this piece of land, but we want you to be there if you're in. So if you're not in yet and you're on the journey, that's fine. That's not really the place for you. If you're saying, though, you know what? I'm, I'm committed to owning my own pursuit of Jesus. I'm in to finding my place in the mission, and I'm in to owning the price of progress. I wanna to contribute to be part of this endeavor then we'd love to invite you to that. It's February 12th um, at our land, and we'll be sending out more communication about that through the e-news and on our website. So there you go. We'd love to have you there if you wanna be there. All right, last week, we talked about owning your pursuit of Jesus, and I talked a little bit about the story of Noah and the covenant God made with him, and then led that into Abram, who eventually became Abraham, Father Abraham, and the covenant God made with him in Genesis 12. And as we continue on that journey, it kind of led us to this place of saying, <clears throat> if God's making a covenant, it is a two-way street, right? Just like marriage is a two-way street. A marriage can thrive and be healthy if both husband and wife actually mutually come together in that covenant and they both serve one another in that covenant and hold to the terms of that covenant. Where marriages go wrong, where they end in divorce or separation, is when both parties are not staying and remaining in that covenant, right? That's not just in marriage, it's actually with God. Like, when you are in that covenant relationship with him, then as long as you're holding up your end of the bargain, man, things are fruitful and you are blessed. But when you run from him, when you dishonor him, when you rebel against him, you are then breaking the terms of that covenant, and therefore there are consequences which are clear. Just like in the marriage realm, um, God wants to be a people that are faithful. He's always faithful. That's not the issue. It's on our part, right? And so throughout the Bible, you see stories of people that were faithful in seasons and then not faithful, right? And you see and you see stories of people who remain faithful to the end. We want to be a people that are saying, man, we trust God. We have faith in God. Our faith is steadfast. Our trust is sure. We trust in his nature and his goodness. And therefore, when Jesus turns the corner, comes around, and we're just tending our nets like Peter and Andrew, and he says, drop your nets, come and follow me. We're saying, hey, I'm in. I've already decided that I trust you, that you're good, your intentions are good, and I can have faith in you, Jesus, so wherever you're going, I wanna go. And that's where it starts for every believer. You have to come to terms and say, you know, I'm willing to follow Jesus wherever he takes me. But that really is on you. It's, it's not on church leadership, it's not on your parents, it's not on your best friend, it's not even on your spouse, that God's invitation is that you would have your faith be your own to where you are held accountable, and you are responsible for reading the word of God, for knowing it, for learning about it. It doesn't mean we don't need community, we absolutely do, but it can't be two people in the life group pulling the other 20, 
It's got to be 20 rowing together, so to speak. And so we're committed to being a people who have faith and trust in God and who can own your pursuit of Jesus. Today we're going to talk about owning your place in his mission, all right? So owning your place in his mission. And so I'm going to talk about the story of Moses a little bit. So bear with me. I tried to summarize about 30 chapters in the Bible and a few statements, okay? So I'm going to read it for you. Here we go. Taking you from Noah to Abraham on to Moses. Abraham had a son named Isaac, and he had a son named Jacob, who would be called Israel one day, and he had 12 sons, right? You staying with me here? Of whom Joseph was one of them. His older brothers, Joseph's older brothers, actually grew jealous of him and envious of him and eventually abandoned him and down a well and sold him into slavery, and there he goes, Joseph, off to Egypt, right? Now, eventually, God made a way for Joseph to emerge from servitude into leadership by being the number two person in charge, essentially Pharaoh's right-hand man, to handle the economy and the finances of the entire empire of Egypt. One day, a severe famine came that God told Joseph about, and a seven-year famine came, which meant people are starving, not just in Egypt, but everywhere. But because God's wisdom putting Joseph in charge, he actually gathered, collected, wheat and other items so they could have a stockpile so they could actually feed people in the midst of the famine. Those people, his brothers and father who were in the midst of the famine, came to Egypt. They heard about the supply of food and through the grace and mercy of God ended up saving his entire people. The entire Hebrew people, the entire nation of Israel was saved through this crazy story of Joseph, right? So <clears throat> Joseph's there. And um, in, 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 the midst, in the midst of all this, go a few generations down, and Moses, Moses is born. Now, at this time, Moses, he was of the tribe of Levi. And um, when he was born, there was an edict out from the Pharaoh because he knew that the people, see, they had come to Egypt to gather food. They ended up staying there, setting up shop. So then his brothers and their families multiplied, and it grew to over three million people living in Egypt. They were the Hebrew people, outnumbering the Egyptians. So Pharaoh felt pretty threatened, and he said, hey, we want to enslave these guys to do our work because we're scared they're going to take us over. So then Pharaoh and the Egyptians enslaved three million plus people. So that's where we enter the story with Moses. In this, he made an edict saying, because they were growing so rapidly in population, that any of the boys that were born, Hebrew boys, should be killed. So if you had a Hebrew son, he sent soldiers to go kill that boy. Well, Moses' mother knew this, so when she gave birth to him, she hid him for three months, and then she eventually put him in a little basket, knew she couldn't keep him safe long, floated him down the river, right where she knew that Pharaoh's daughter would come down to bathe daily. Isn't this ironic, right? Her dad's trying to kill all the sons, but then Pharaoh's daughter actually ends up raising one of them. I love it. So God takes Moses, puts it in the care of Pharaoh's daughter. She then raises him as her own son. Moses grows up. He's part of the whole Egyptian society. One day, he's out for a stroll on his morning walk. He goes and looks and sees that all these Egyptian kind of soldiers are really beating and burdening his Hebrew brothers and sisters in this, in this whole endeavor. They're building the pyramids and everything else. And he goes out there, and he gets so angry, he ends up killing one of these Egyptian soldiers. He buries him in the sand, and he thinks no one saw. Well, he got that wrong because people saw. People turned him into Pharaoh. Pharaoh wanted to kill him. Now Moses is now fleeing for his life. He heads off to a place called Midian, and that's where we pick up the story. So Moses is out there in Midian, and in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 through 24, this is what it says. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, 
speaking of the Pharaoh. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Isn't that good news? That when you cry out to God, he actually does, listen, he actually does hear you. And so God hears the people, and let's pick it up in Exodus chapter three. This is the burning bush moment you may have heard about or read about with Moses. He's out there, next thing you know, he's herding sheep, and then a bush or a tree gets lit on fire, and it's God, but it's not being consumed. So kind of one of those once-in-a-lifetime moments, okay? So keep all this in perspective. Incredible encounter with the living God literally talking to him now out of this burning bush, and this is what proceeds, starting in verse 9 of Exodus chapter 3. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, Moses, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this very mountain where I'm speaking to you now. That was a sign. One day you're gonna exit Egypt and your people will gather this mountain and that'll be the sign. But here we go. This is the start of the excuses for Moses. Exodus chapter four. Not a good chapter for Moses. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord replied to Moses, then I will show them signs and wonders through you. He actually says, hey, take this staff, throw it on the ground, turn it into a snake, pick it back up, turns it into a staff. It's a pretty cool magic trick. Hey, put your hand inside your coat pocket, it turns into leprosy, white as snow, put it back in, now it's healed. He said, I'm gonna give you some different signs to prove to the people this is legit, right? Well, now we go on to excuse number two. Verse 10, but Moses said to the Lord, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. What's funny is like Moses is acting like God doesn't know him, right? Did you forget I wasn't, I'm not a good communicator, right? Here, here's the Lord's reply, verse 11 and 12. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Excuse number three gets backfired there. And here we go on verse 13. But he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. Now he's at the end, right? I mean, he, he tried the other, you know, he tried like to build the argument for why this is not good. And now he's just like, I'm out of excuses. Now, Lord, send someone else. But here's the Lord's reply in verse 14. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. That's not good. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth. And will teach you both what to do. Now, remember, I told you, burning bush. Once in a lifetime moment, God's speaking. Moses, remove your sandals. You're on holy ground. I'm about to tell you something out in the middle of nowhere with these sheep about this incredible opportunity. And Moses goes through his list of excuses, right? 
and he's trying to argue his way out of it. I'm wondering if any of us have ever tried doing that, right? The answer is yes. It's like, hey, do this. Ah, but you don't know. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm too young, or I'm not equipped for that, right? Or it's not my gifting, or whatever it is. So here we go. Moses, let's go through his excuses again, okay? Who am I that I should go? Right, what's he saying? I don't have worth or value. Who am I? I'm a nobody. <laughs> Excuse number two, but they will not believe me or listen to my voice. He's saying, I'm, I'm not a leader, Lord. I'm not very convincing. Number three, I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech and tongue. He's saying, I can't really communicate well. Public speaking is not really my gifting. Or number four, please send somebody else. Not me. This mission has failed from the beginning, right? That's what Moses is saying. Now, what holds us back from actually engaging in the mission of God? What holds us back? What, what surfaces, what excuses or justifiable reasons we think are there before us actually obeying the Lord? Well, I would argue that Moses dealt with insecurity, lack of experience, fear of public speaking. He wasn't connected or relevant socially. He'd been gone for 40 years. Like, all of his buddies from high school, they were gone, okay? He didn't have anybody's husband. But I'm just saying, like, they were gone. It'd be like you graduate from A&M, you go away for 40 years, you'd come back, you're like, hey, guys, I'm back. People are like, I don't care. I don't know who you are. Like, no, you know, class of 05, like, that was me, literally. We moved away, but I wasn't gone for 40, I was gone for four. And I came back, I didn't know anybody. I was like, where did everybody go? There was 12,000 of us that graduated. And now they've all left College Station, you know? That's how I felt. So here's Moses He's returning back, and he's like, I don't know anybody. He's not connected. But what do we deal with, right? Like, what are our excuses that we have to why we don't engage with mission? Maybe, well, we don't take the next step. Maybe it's, it's not my gifting, right? Could be back to Moses. Um, I don't feel like I have any worth. I don't think I'm valuable enough to help in that way. Not qualified. Maybe it's the, I don't have the experience, so therefore I can't do that. Or I'm afraid to fail. Or a classic one, it's not my passion, right? Just a little side note, I would challenge you to find a person in the Bible that did what they were passionate about. Um, what you're not gonna find is that answer. What you're gonna find is people that did what God wanted them to do. Uh, remember, I, I don't think Noah grew up wanting to build a big boat in the desert. Right, I'm pretty sure Moses didn't want to go do the 10 plagues thing and lead his people out of Egypt. I'm pretty sure Joseph didn't want to get sold into slavery and live in Egypt. And I'm pretty sure Peter and James and John were pretty content just fishing. But God's not really interested in your passions above his. But when you actually get his passions, then, and you put yours to the side, you know what happens? He tends to breathe on those after you get on board with him. You ever notice that? Like, when you actually put aside your own desires and dreams and put his first, these usually get put back in the story, but in its proper place. The story doesn't start with what you want to do. The story starts with what he wants to do. And then he weaves in those things that he gifted you for, that you are passionate about, into the story. Do you understand what I'm saying? Moses had a passion for his people being set free. He just went about it the wrong way. He murdered a man instead of actually going about it God's way. The desire was there to set people free. He didn't know how. 
your passions are good. But if your passions are out of alignment or the timing is off or the way you're going about them is off, it's not going to work. But if you get in alignment with him, oh, my goodness, he will breathe life on what he's calling you to do. See, the mission of God, I think, many times is often not fuzzy. It's actually quite clear. But what is fuzzy is our part in it, our part to play, right? So I want us to shift gears from the Old Testament to the New Testament for a minute to go to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. If you're turning your Bibles there, we'll have on the screen in a moment. But I want to set the stage for you. Here's a great little story. The mother of James and John is there with the other disciples and Jesus, and um, she asked Jesus to consider her sons, James and John, to have a special place in the kingdom. Sound familiar, American moms? Yeah. No, no, no. Timmy deserves to be the captain. He's really a great leader. You know? Or, no, no, no. Jennifer, she should be the captain of the cheer squad. I know it. She's been working really hard. Right? Or, no, no. My son deserves to be in the gifted and talented program. Do you see how smart he is? I mean, listen, any good parent's going to fight for their kid. Fight for your kid. You should think your kid is awesome, okay? But the reality check comes in when we actually try to, um, when we try to fight for our children in a way that God's not asking us to put them, or when we're exalting our children to a place they're not supposed to be exalted. Remember, there is no idol worship allowed. Children can be your idol. They can be your idol, and for many parents, they are. I just spent the, the Saturday doing a baseball tournament with my son, Graham, these are eight-year-old boys. There's some other parents that their idols are their children. And it's sad. Idolatry may not be a statue outside their house. It may be the child running in their home. But God said, you will have no other idols for me. Love your kids, steward them, and raise them. But God is your God, not your children. And this mother got off. And Jesus actually rebuked her. Now, when she says this, what's interesting is that the other disciples says they were indignant. Like, they were furious. What? You're asking that these, we've been with them the whole time too. You can see a little turf war forming. It's like the 10 over here versus James and John. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, you know. So Jesus sees this little war brewing, this little skirmish, and he interjects here in Matthew 20, verse 25. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came to be served, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Did you catch what he said? He said, it shall not be so among you, speaking to his disciples, and calling them out of this place of where greatness comes from your ability to lead, he's saying greatness comes from your ability to serve. You know, this past weekend, I don't know if you guys know, we got a few dogs at our house, and whenever we leave for a weekend or something, we gotta have someone come wash the dogs, right? And so we asked someone, I'm not gonna name them, uh, and you'll see why in a moment, but I asked someone to come stay at our house this weekend to help out, and uh, he graciously said yes and came. He's never stayed at our house before, he's never helped with the dogs, and so I kind of walked him through it, and then I left, and we were gone Friday and, and came back late Saturday night. And um, he had texted me during the day on Saturday. He said, hey, is there anything I can do to help out? And I said, no, you're good. Just kind of have fun and, you know, relax or whatever, enjoy it. And um, I said, there's one little thing you could do, kind of put this new latch on the shed for me or whatever you want. And 
So I came back last night. We got in eight thirty, nine o'clock last night. Put the kids down, and um, I look, and in the kitchen, um, all the dishes are done. There's all the laundry is folded, sorted into everyone's different piles. The upstairs room where he stayed is completely made. The bed's done. Um, the dogs are taken care of, and sitting on the counter was a plate of 24 chocolate chip cookies that he baked. Okay, now you ladies are like, I need to marry this guy, you know? <laughs> All right, let me just say, we've had a lot of people stay at our house. I've never been that blessed by someone staying at our house. I didn't ask him to do that. Do you know why he did that? Because he knows this. The greatest among you will be your servant. He has a servant's heart already. He didn't need me to tell him to bake cookies. But I actually had this little suspicion, like he's gonna go above and beyond our house. That's why I told him, hey, just chill and relax, because I knew it. He has the heart of a servant. What would it look like if our whole church had that heart? You go somewhere, you leave it better than when you left it. Like, you go to life group, you're not being told to put the chairs up, you just do it automatically. Like, you go to someone's house for dinner, you offer to do the dishes, don't wait for them to do it. Like, what if all of a sudden, the culture was, we serve first. Like, that's, that's the automatic thing. We're always looking to outserve each other. Wouldn't that be cool? If it was like, hey, those people at Antioch, I don't know much about them, but they just serve, like, all the time. Like, everywhere. It's like, I'm trying to put my grocery cart back in a little bin, and, like, they're taking it from me. You know, like, instead of having the guy to H-E-B take her groceries out, some person from Antioch's just grabbing the groceries, taking them out. Like, what if, like, what if it was known those people, I don't know if I believe in what they believe. I don't know if I'd want to go to their church, but there's something about them that I'm drawn to and makes my heart come alive when I get around them because they're just pure servant-hearted. They don't want a place at the table. They don't want a plaque with their name on it or a little brick that says, I gave. They just want to be seen by him. This young man just wanted to be seen by him. We're tremendously blessed by it. Jesus said, the great ones must be your servant, following after the footsteps of Jesus. So if our mindset shifts to say, I'm actually a servant, that's who I am. That's not part of my identity. Then what's the obvious next step? Well, 1 Corinthians 12, 14 through 20 says this, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. If you don't know that's referencing, it's referencing towards the church. The body of Christ. The whole chapter is about the body of Christ and the unity of the body, which is the people of God. He's talking about, if we look at the illustration of a body, all the parts needed. It's pretty hard to walk on four toes. I've never tried, but I've heard it's quite difficult. You actually need that little pinky one, apparently, right? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, hey, it's hard. Like, it, it's hard to do things if you don't have it all connected here. And so as a church, as a body, you can see how we can be a little awkward or clunky when everyone's not doing their part, right? 
And so Paul's exhorting the Corinthian church, and here's, here's what I love, though. Here's a little phrase that gets overlooked. We've kind of heard the body illustration. Yeah, 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 I get it, Tyler. A hand, a finger, a mind, an ear. You don't, you don't need to really worry about what you are. You don't need to, like, labor yourself as a body part. Like, put it, I'm an ear at Antioch. You know, just don't do that. That's weird. But here's what we overlook, okay? He says, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. Uh-oh. As he chose. As he chose. Not as you chose. As he chose. Now, hold on a second. As he chose. If God created you and made you in the image of God, male and female, he created them. If he gave you the hair color you have, whether you like it or not, if he gave you the height you have, if he gave you the personality you have, if he gave you the giftings you have, the brain you have, some of you are good at tests and some of you aren't. I fall in the latter. Okay? Like, some of you are able to have certain giftings and skill sets that are God-given and you've been able to develop over time, but intrinsically, God gave them to you and provided for you. So if God knows it about you, then don't you know God has a plan and a place for you? And how do I know that? Because Jeremiah 29, 11 says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Which is why when he says, as he chose, what is he saying? He's saying he did choose you to play a significant part in the body, be it a pinky, ear, eye, or something else. And then if you don't play that part, if you are not part of that body, there is disunity, there is dysfunction, and overall we just get real awkward. And we don't fully function as we are intended to be, which means we can't fully run the race and the mission that God has us on because we are lagging some of the necessary parts. If we would simply change our mindsets to say, God made me, and the way he made me is good. Therefore, if he gave me an amazing voice, I'm gonna sing. If I don't have an amazing voice, I'm gonna get on the back line and play. But there's a place you on this worship team. If God gave you a certain gifting or skill set or didn't, you need to use that. But, but what is killing the church and what is literally killing people, sadly, in our country is that they don't really know who they are. We are living in the midst of an identity crisis with our people, especially our youth, which many of you would be categorized in that category. Everyone in this room knows someone that's taken their own life or has heard of a story and most likely it tended to be someone on the lines of they lost who they were, they didn't feel valued, they didn't have worth, and they went down this place, this dark place. It is tragic. It is tragic. And it is not in God's plan or heart for that to happen. But I wanna let you know is that we can't take care of everybody, but certainly the people in this church, I want you to know there is value, there is worth on your life, and we need you to be part of the body. But if you disconnect, we can't do anything about that. If you keep pushing yourself away, we keep inviting you in, I don't know what to do. But there is a place for you here. If you're 85 years old, 15, anywhere in between, there's a place for you here. And if you think there's not a place you here, come and talk to me after the service. We will find a place you here. Because here's what I know. I know that just like exercise, healthy eating, and sleep are good for your body and soul, so is serving. Serving is actually part of your spiritual development. And listen, there are crowds 
followers and disciples in the kingdom of God. The crowds are the people who get fed a lot of fish and bread, and they're so thankful for the miracle of fish and bread, but their crowd, they stay on that mountain, and Jesus goes on. The followers, wow, that was such an incredible miracle. We're gonna follow this guy to the next town. They go to the next town, they follow Jesus, but then he says, now we're gonna go on a little more narrow road, and they say, actually, we're gonna stay put in this town. The disciples say, we're shining up to the end. You choose where you wanna be, but you're in one of those groups. You're either in the crowd group, which is okay if you're there. You're just hearing about Jesus the first time. You're like, I've never been to the church in my life, or someone dragged me here today. That's great, it's okay. Jesus loves the crowds and ministers of the crowds, and I want him to continue to minister to your heart. But at some point, when you really get touched by God, there's gonna be a nudge and a decision moment fork in the road to say, am I really gonna get up and follow this guy? Am I really gonna open this, read it, and actually do it? Now, I'm just gonna warn you. If you actually do read it, you're gonna have to do something about it, right? To him who knows what to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. Being ignorant is not the sin. It's knowing what to do and not doing it. So the warning is, if you start reading the Bible, start reading all those words in red that Jesus said, you just start there, you're gonna have to change some things in your life. I've had to. I continue to do so. <laughs> because it's not about me. It's about this being the foundation for how I live. This is the filter by which I see everything. It needs to be. And that's what God's inviting us into. You know, it's funny that the... Um, Sometimes at the church we don't get this, but in sports we get it, right? Super Bowl's happening today. Um, as far as I know, there are no 300-pound quarterbacks. There's no six-foot-four jockeys in horse racing. There's no five-foot-six five power forwards in the NBA. Why? Because they don't have the heart? No, it's because you just got to be a certain height in the NBA. That's just the way it is. You can get angry at it. It's just the way it is. You're going to get rejected all day long. 300-pound quarterback, you're not able to move very fast. They're gonna get you. And a horse jockey, six foot four, you ain't gonna go anywhere. You'll be in the, you'll, you'll bring up the rear, you know? It's just, there's a reality, but when we get angry at God for how he made us, I'm just, I'm gonna go severe for just a moment. Let's read this point. You guys ready for this one? Okay. This is very near to my heart. For you not for you not to understand how much God loves you and how he created you is beautiful. It's like looking at Jesus who's dying on the cross for you, saying, I'm doing this for you, spitting on his face and saying, you messed up. You're not, you, you can't die for this. Look at me, I'm worthless. Do you know how much that breaks God's heart? Ladies, you know how much it breaks his heart? You look in the mirror and don't think you're beautiful because of what some dude said or some societal thing said? The biggest, loudest voice is his voice. He said, I made you in your mother's womb. I love you just the way you're made. I don't care about all the people that are the things. Listen to me. Men, the same thing. You wish you looked like someone else, you could do something else, quit wishing for that. Own who you are. If you will own who you are, trust me, your life will be fruitful and joyful. If you can sing, sing. If you can't, be okay with it. I can't sing that great. I'm over that. I'm not crying every Saturday night. <laughs> you know, I never learned to play instruments. That's no one's fault. That's mine. I chose to do sports instead of instruments. I wish I would have learned some stuff, but I can play GCD on the guitar. That's all I got. I'm not sitting around complaining about it. I have a different role and function in the church, and I'm good with that. 
are you? And some of you aren't good because you've never actually taken a step to participate in the body. See, the first step is saying, Jesus saying, come follow me, and you're actually following him. The next step is actually saying, I'm gonna do something about it, because it's not just about our identity in him, it's there's an action step, right? First Corinthians chapter 12, 24 through 26. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. There may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Listen, we've gotta be a family. For 10 plus years as a church, we have functioned and continue to do so based off people volunteering and serving in this church. This is not a two-man band. This takes the body of Christ. But I will honestly tell you right now, our church is at a critical moment. Because if, if you have decided this is my church family, but you don't participate in the family, we hurt. The body suffers. We're, we're hurting because you're not contributing. I need you part of the team. I need you with our kids, I need you. Listen, if you're like, I'm not good with kids, a great first step is serving in our kids' ministry. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like, we'll help you. That's not a good excuse. I already told you, Moses tried to have all the excuses in front of the burning bush moment. You, you don't wanna have that. Just, yes, sir, I'm in, Lord, just help me. And you know what's interesting is what I talked about earlier, we didn't get on board with his plan, especially if you're younger. So if you're in college right now, here's my advice to you. Start serving somewhere, and eventually you'll develop experiences, develop skill sets, hone on your gifting, and when you get older, you'll actually narrow in. You don't start there at 22. That's not where you start. I don't want you to be CEO of my company at 22 because you don't have any life experience yet with doing the job and going through the ups and downs, the trials and the financial crunches and them, all that. You don't have it. Not because I don't love you, but you need to have life experience. You need to start somewhere, right? What's the scripture say? He who is faithful in the little will be ruler over much. So you gotta start somewhere. You gotta start somewhere. Serving in life group. Hey, go to life group leaders. Hey, how can I start serving? How can I be part of what we're doing here? Instead of just showing up every Wednesday, I wanna contribute and be part of this. Today, we're gonna give you a clear road and a clear avenue to serve and be connected to this church. And again, it's for your benefit. It's like, we benefit too, but it's for your spiritual walk. Like, it is part of the progression of someone who wants to become a disciple of Jesus. But I just wanna encourage one more thing, that although you may not, um, you know, as I talked about sports, right? The X factor we have is the Holy Spirit, right? And, and, and so, listen, I literally know of people, have had stories, where someone literally had horrible, like, singing, like, horrible vocal cords, literally. Actually, God had done a miracle. People had prayed for them, healed vocal cords, and they sing, like, angelic-like songs. Now, that's impossible. Well, that's the kind of God we have. There can be a five-foot-six NBA power forward if he can jump five feet, and that's possible. Hey, God can do it, okay? If that vertical's off the charts, and God can do that, okay? But I'm just saying that we need to be okay with how God's made us and say, Lord, where's my part to play? Instead of hoping to be someone else our whole life, starting with comparison and envy and strife, then all of a sudden there's disunity in the body and you feel like there's no place for me when all along there was. Just because it wasn't your niche doesn't mean you don't do it. Guys, my first job was a janitor at a middle school in the summer, sixth grade. 
I did it two summers in a row. I scraped gum off desks. I redid locker combos. And I had a lot of fun with that little machine that kind of waxes all the floors. As a sixth grade boy, I started as a janitor. Do you think my dream job was scraping gum off the desk my buddies put on them? No. But with joy, I packed my lunch. My mom dropped me off at work every day, and I was so excited to go to work and to do something that was going to help. Some of us lack that because you've given so much, but you give back so little. I know that because the survey we just did in November, 32% of our church actually volunteers in some capacity, either once a week, twice, uh, twice a month, or, or I'm sorry, once a month, twice a month, or four times a month. Essentially it was, if you serve at all on a monthly basis, 32% of our church, which means two-thirds of the people in this room don't volunteer at all, you show up on Sundays. And I'm glad you do. And if you are part of that crowd and saying, you know what, I'm just checking things out. I'm not really sure what I think about it. That's fine. But if you've been here a while and you're part of this family, you are in that category now where our family is suffering because you're not contributing as God has gifted you to do so. He gave you the gift. He gave you the energy. He gave you the time. And we need you on the team. And I'm tired of hearing stories of people that lead life group for us and serve in the children's ministry and volunteer in the host team or something else. They're doing three jobs because others are unwilling to do the work. Let me give you an illustration of the Hardy House. Let's talk about chores for a minute, right? So what if Ash and I went to our five kids and said, hey, guys, all right, we got a bunch of chores we got to do as a family, but you can do them if you want to. You can do them if it fits your skill set or your particular passion or gifting, but these are chores you need to get done, so here they go. How would that conversation, how, how would that end? Here's how it ends. Um, a few would actually do chores because they're like, oh, I'd like to do this. A few do them because they see the need. They'll, oh, I'll just do that. I'll chip in. And a few wouldn't do anything at all. So then who's left to finish up the chores? You guessed it, mom and dad. Mom and dad stay up late, do the chores. Mom and dad get up early, do the chores. Mom and dad have to get on to the children, do the chores. Now, how does that story end with that family? Those children grow up to be teenagers one day, and we never fully trained them how to do the chores, held the line, held them accountable. Therefore, they grew up. Now they're arguing. They become selfish. They don't want to take care of themselves. Then they go off to college. They can't do their own laundry. They don't know how to cook a meal. They certainly can't clean a toilet. They never balance a bank account. And all of a sudden, now I'm talking to half the room. <laughs> because that was all my roommates in college. You're laughing because you know it's true. But it's not an excuse to say, I didn't get that growing up. Boo-hoo. Start now. Watch YouTube videos on how to clean. You watch YouTube videos for everything else. You want to change your oil? Watch a video. Or go to a grown man in this church and say, teach me how to change oil in my car. The excuses are out. That is 2019. Okay? 2020, there are no excuses. I just gave you a very clear case, and actually, you're not gonna find an excuse in the Bible that God says, that's a really good excuse, actually. <laughs> there aren't any in the entirety of the Bible. There's not one that God says, that's a great excuse. You know, that's a good point. You're from a lesser tribe. You know, you're short. You know, you can't speak well. You know, they're right. No. Every one of them, they're like, oh, I feel insecure. And he's like, perfect. <laughs> that's my guy. Gideon, Peter, Paul, but I've got a past. I know, perfect. You guys do not understand it. God is in the business of taking broken, 
messed up people and putting them on trajectory of serving. Do you know why? Because he gets all the glory, you get none. Do you want to know my story for a second? I'll tell you. Here you go. Whether you want to know it or not. In 2008, we were asked to consider planting a church in College Station, Texas. I said no. Okay? My wife kept her mouth shut because she knew the Lord told her, let me deal with Tyler. Not good for me. For four months, I met with Jimmy, our senior pastor in Waco. I told him all the reasons why I can't lead a church. I talked about failing speech class, nearly freshman year at Blinn. I talked about my stuttering I had in high school. I talked about being an introvert. I talked about having a lisp at times in my life. I talked about stage fright. All the reasons why that'd not be a good candidate for senior pastor. You know what he did? He looked at me. He said, Tyler, God equips those he calls. And I was like, ugh. I even tried to find ways on the character side that would disqualify me. Well, I mean, high school, I mean, you know, I wrapped this person's house, you know. And, I mean, and he, I wanted to get out of it so bad. I really did, guys. You, know, you may think, oh, he dreamed of being a pastor. That's not the story. I ran for ministry. What happens when you run for something, though? God's like, hey, you're gonna go back to that. God pulled me into this. You know why I'm leading today? Because God pulled me into something I didn't want to do, but he did. But I chose a while ago to surrender my life to his. I would encourage you to get there in your own journey. It's a lot better way to live. What I'm doing now is a lot better than what I was going to do. I don't know what your story is. I don't know what God's doing in your life. But I'm telling you, if you don't start getting in the game and serving in his church, his people, you are missing out developmentally, spiritually as a person, as an adult. And you may not get to do things you like to do. That's actually good. Because there's a season of brokenness and surrender God needs to take all of us on. Usually once you get to that place and all these things, has, hey, I got something new for you. Amen? Let's go and close today. I'm gonna invite the band on up. As we end, I want us to go and stand and, you know, I hope you guys hear my heart, which is we've come to the conclusion that as a church, we can't go to the next step without you, truthfully. We cannot go to a new piece of land, build a new facility, and invite hundreds of new people into our congregation and to life groups and establishment relationships with Jesus if we're not prepared. This is a preparation phase for us the next two years. We've got to prepare. We've got to get people knowing the word of God. That's why we're doing these devotionals. We've got to get people serving and volunteering more than just 30%. We've got to get people that are willing to contribute, be a part of this church financially and staying here and being a part of this family. We need people to commit to being a part of what we're doing or else we can't do it. It's a vision God's given us. I believe it's God initiated in many different ways and confirmed in several different ways, but we can't go tugging people up the hill. We've got to go together. I don't know where you're at this morning, but we're gonna end with a song called Build My Life. And I just, as you sing, as you worship, I just want you to come to that place and really more than anything, just to surrender to the Lord. Say, so, Lord, I wanna surrender all my preconceived notions and all my ideas, and I just wanna become a servant. Because that's really the way of the kingdom. And remember, Jesus took it to the nth degree. He gave up his life on a cross 
He died for our sins so that we could have life. And when we serve someone else, it's so that they can have life, so they can experience something. And in return, you're so blessed by it as well. So Lord, I just ask, would you search our hearts this morning? Search our hearts, Lord, and just help us, God, if there's, if there's something off, if there's a mindset that we feel worthless or not valued, I don't know, or if there's an excuse that we keep coming back to, just would you speak into those places, Lord? Speak into them, God, and then, Lord, just give us the courage to take the next step. Just say, Lord, I wanna be part of this family and help us just to start moving, just to hop on with what you're doing and say, God, show me along the way. Lord, we trust you. We need you to help us be a family. Doesn't just talk like one, but actually acts like one. We trust you, in Jesus' name.